Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Sheen Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is a special episode in response to the recent Supreme Court decision, 303 Creative LLC versus Atlantic. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, who is also our chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Today, we're doing a special episode to jump in to focus directly on this opinion. And while I know this is the first of many conversations we'll have about this court case, I sincerely doubt it's the last. Once again, I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here with you, Shane. So quite the ending to Pride Month. The decision came out on June 30th. We have spoken at great length on prior podcast episodes about the facts of the case and what happened during oral arguments. So let's just jump right in with a quick summary of the facts of the case and the decision itself. The the facts of the case, uh, which have been hashed over many times, are a troublesome issue in terms of analyzing uh, this case and what it portends because there was a stipulation of facts uh, between the state of Colorado and Alliance Defending Freedom, who filed a lawsuit on behalf of 303 Creative LLC, which is actually a one-person business. It's uh, Lori Smith, who uh, is a website designer. And Lori Smith uh, had never done wedding websites. And the allegations here is that she was interested in expanding her business to include wedding websites, but she was advised that Colorado law would not allow her to refuse to make such websites for same-sex couples if she made wedding websites at all. The uh, anti-discrimination law in Colorado bans discrimination because of sexual orientation in public accommodations. Any business selling goods or services to the public is considered a public accommodation. And uh, there is also a provision saying that you cannot publish a policy or an intention to discriminate based on any grounds prohibited by the statute. So there's an anti-discrimination provision and there's the so-called communications provision. You shall not communicate an intent to discriminate. And she was advised she would be violating both because her intention was, and she actually drafted a statement to put on her website, because of her religious views about marriage, she could not do same-sex marriage websites. So it's pretty clear that if she put that message on her website, she would be violating the statute. It's clear, it seems, and uh, it was stipulated by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the defendant in this case, uh, Aubrey Lennis, the named defendant is the chair of the commission it's pretty clear that they would consider it a violation of the statute for her to advertise that she's doing marriage websites, but she will not do same-sex marriage websites. She disagrees and Alliance Defending Freedom argues on her behalf. She says she does not discriminate based on sexual orientation. She just doesn't do same-sex marriage websites because of her religious beliefs. She will design other kinds of websites for great clientele. She said she she has no problem, you know, maybe for a birthday party or something else. If people do websites for a birthday party or if they want to do something, some charitable thing that doesn't violate her religious views, 
she would do a website. Or uh, as came up in the oral argument and, and it, was, it was sort of a, you've gotta be kidding me, she would be happy to satisfy a gay customer who wants to do a wedding website for a straight couple. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's sort of odd. It's it it reminds me of the old saying that both rich and poor are equally allowed to sleep under bridges. I think that was attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes. But at any event, the uh, lawsuit was filed basically for an advisory opinion. In fact, the uh, the district court in Denver dismissed the case as far as it concerned the anti discrimination provision claiming that they were asking for an advisory opinion because she had never done this, that it was totally hypothetical that she would do marriage websites. She'd never done one before. And there was no evidence that uh, she'd ever been asked to do one, although some spurious evidence came to light later on, which has uh, aroused some interesting media attention since it was revealed in an article in the New Republic. It, it seems that it wasn't until the case was about to be argued that a reporter thought it would be interesting to check out the bona fides of the so-called request, which was filed on her website. A form was filled out and submitted on her website asking for, uh, not for a marriage website, asking for various things uh, and saying, and maybe we would stretch to a website. Uh, it purported to be from someone who said that it was for himself and his same-sex partner. It was submitted the day after the lawsuit was filed, which means the day news about the lawsuit was in all the newspapers, in, at least in Colorado. And uh, the reporter tracked it down and discovered it was filed from some, by someone in San Francisco who is not gay, who doesn't have a same-sex partner, who is a straight married man with children. Uh, he said he knows nothing about it. He did not submit it. And furthermore, that he disagrees with Laurie Smith's position and thinks that she should be required to make websites for same-sex couples. So, you know, set that aside. She's never been really asked, although it may be that since then she's gotten requests by people who just wanted to get her to say something that they could file a discrimination claim against her. But the, the trial court said that that was uh, asking for an advisory opinion, but said she did have standing to challenge the communications provision because her allegation was that she didn't publish the statement on her website because of the communications provision. So her first amendment speech had been chilled in that respect. But the trial judge said that it does not violate first amendment rights to prohibit you from communicating that you intend to violate the law. And that would be communicating that she intended to violate the law. So on that ground, the uh, district court ruled in favor of the civil rights commission and, and against Laurie Smith, she appealed to the 10th circuit the 10th Circuit agreed, uh, disagreed on the question of standing. They said that she had standing to challenge both provisions because they took at face value and, be, and because the party stipulated as a fact that she wanted to do uh, same, uh, she wanted to do uh, wedding websites and that she had religious objections to doing wedding websites for same-sex couples. And because of the then pending U.S. Supreme Court case, that is at the time this case was filed, of Masterpiece Cake Shop, it was clear that the Civil Rights Commission was actively enforcing the statute against people who discriminate in public accommodations based on sexual orientation. So it was not purely speculative and hypothetical that if she went ahead and did this, she might end up finding herself before the Civil Rights Commission as a, as a defendant. So they found that there was standing. 
And they found, and this flows directly from the stipulations of fact, according to Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the court's opinion for six members of the court, they found that designing a website, at least in the way she does it, because there was a stipulation about how she does it, that this isn't a case of her designing a template for a same-sex marriage website and the client just supplies the information to fill in on the template. No, she said that she collaboratively works with the client to design and to do the text and to select the graphics and all this sort of thing, that it's a collaborative process that allows uh, a lot of speech back and forth. And it flows from that, that what appears on the website is both her speech and the client's speech, perhaps intermingled in that sense, uh, but that her speech is a component of it. And based on that, the 10th Circuit said, this is about pure speech, this case. It's about pure speech, which means it is subject to strict scrutiny. Now, this isn't an on, your, on its face strict scrutiny. This is an as-applied strict scrutiny. But uh, as it would be applied to the particular stipulated facts in this case, they said it is subject to strict scrutiny. And this is the rare case in which the as-applied statute survives strict scrutiny because the court said Colorado has a compelling interest in prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation in places of public accommodation. And the only way to achieve that interest is not to make exceptions, that they have to. Uh, they can't make an exception for someone's religious beliefs or someone's free speech claims. So they ruled in favor of the Civil Rights Commission, but using an analysis that many people were uneasy about because they were starting from the premise that it's strict scrutiny. And if it's strict scrutiny, how can a statute withstand strict scrutiny on a constitutional claim? People were concerned. And in fact, after hearing the oral argument, many people said, yeah, we're going to lose this at least six to three, and maybe even unanimously. Who knows? And uh, Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, said, we agree with the Colorado, with the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, that this case involves pure speech. And we agree that strict scrutiny applies. Where we disagree is we don't think it survives strict scrutiny in this as-applied case. We think that when a... Uh, constitutional right or freedom of speech comes into uh, conflict with a statutory claim, the constitutional claim wins. And this is a state statute. It's not a federal statute. It's a state civil rights law. And as against that, a federal constitutional right of free speech wins. He didn't even go to much detail as to why. It's, you might say, supremacy clause. You know? And so six members of the court seeing this as a case regulating a content-based regulation of speech, decided that, the, uh, that Laurie Smith had a right to speak. And that includes a right not to speak. And on the issue of the right not to speak, the reliance was on three past Supreme Court decisions in particular. One of them was Hurley against gay, lesbian, bisexual, uh, Irish group of Boston. Uh, the famous St. Patrick's Day Parade case, where the Massachusetts Supreme Court, by a vote of four to three, said the refusal of the South Boston Allied War Veterans, which was the group that had the city permission to put on the parade, they had a right to decide what the message of their parade was. The, uh, this, this is a Supreme Court in the Hurley case. 
the Massachusetts Court of Appeals, four to three, said, no, this is a public accommodations case, and the group has a right to march. Uh, the Supreme Court reversed unanimously, in an opinion by Justice Souter, the entire ideological range of the Supreme Court at that time in the mid-1990s agreed with this opinion. They said a parade is an expressive association. A parade is making a statement. And the people who organize the parade have a right to decide what statement they're gonna make. So uh, their first amendment right prevails. Another case that they relied on was Boy Scouts versus James Dale. Remember the Boy Scouts had, uh, had taken in Mr. Dale. He, he was a Cub Scout as a kid. He went up to Eagle Scout rank when he graduated from that and went off to Rutgers University. They allowed him to become an adult member and he became an assistant troop master. And he also came out at Rutgers and he was an officer of the Rutgers Gay Student Organization. And in that capacity, he spoke at a public event that was reported in local newspapers and someone clipped it out and sent it to the Boy Scouts local unit and said, what are you going to do about this, huh? And they contacted him and said, you're out. We don't allow uh, gay people as members or as leaders. And he eventually sued, Lambda Legal represented him. And the New Jersey Supreme Court was convinced that he had a valid claim. They ruled in his favor against the Boy Scouts. The Supreme Court reversed, uh, this time by a five to four vote. And they said the Boy Scouts also is an expressive association. And the Boy Scouts mission is to communicate certain values to boys and they can decide what those values are. They believe it's inconsistent with the values they want to convey to have an out gay man as an assistant scoutmaster. They characterize Mr. Dale as a gay rights uh, activist uh, because he spoke publicly. So uh, in the eyes of the court, he was a gay rights activist. This was Rehnquist, I believe, writing for the court. But it was a five to four decision. And there was no evidence in that case. There were not stipulated facts. This was uh, a summary judgment after trial. And he never said anything in his role as an assistant scoutmaster of the Boy Scouts about homosexuality. And there was no evidence to contradict that, that he kept that entirely separate from his Boy Scout activities and his Rutgers gay student activities. But they called him a gay activist anyway because he spoke publicly and he was reported in a newspaper. He claimed that although he lost the case, he won the war because within 10 years, the scouts had dropped their ban. There was so much about bad publicity for the scouts about that case that parents started yanking their kids out and non-religious sponsors started dropping their sponsorship of scout troops. It turned into uh, quite an affair. And then the last case relied upon was the uh, famous Barnett case during World War II involving uh, children whose families were Jehovah's Witnesses and they didn't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in their public school classroom because it violated their religious beliefs that you, you did, did not swear allegiance to anyone except God. Uh, that that uh, swear allegiance to the United States of America uh, was like idol worship or something like that. I mean, I don't know all the details. But uh, at any rate, they were disciplined for refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance. This was during World War II. And the case went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said they have a First Amendment right not to speak the Pledge of Allegiance if it's against their religious beliefs, uh, but it's a free speech right. All three of these cases 
you could call them religious cases in a sense, but they were really free speech cases. So uh, Justice Gorsuch says, based on those precedents, it's pretty clear that the state may not compel an artist because that's the way the question was phrased by ADF when they framed the questions in their cert petition, whether the state can compel an artist to speak or not speak, a message with which the artist disagrees. And taking the stipulated facts, they treated Laurie Smith as an artist. And they said, of course, the state cannot compel her to endorse same-sex marriages by designing a website to celebrate a same-sex marriage. They said uh, a marriage website is a celebratory thing. It's communicating approval of the marriage, endorsement of the marriage, celebration of the marriage. She has a right to say, I don't celebrate this marriage, and so I shouldn't be compelled to do so, even though right now it's hypothetical because she's never done a marriage website in the past. So uh, six members of the court signed on to that. And Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissenting opinion for herself, uh, Justices Kagan and Jackson. And she said, no, this, that's not what this case is about. This case is about discrimination in the provision of goods and services by a business that holds itself out to the public as open to anybody. And she said, this is the first time that the court has said that there has to be an exception under Republic accommodations law for someone whose personal views conflict with the public accommodations law. And she said, look, we've, we've held in the past. There were cases that were cited in Masterpiece Cake Shop involving a segregated restaurant in the South, which was held to violate Title II public accommodations provision in the Civil Rights Act of 64. And the owner said, well, it's his religious belief that the races have to be kept separate. That's why uh, we don't seat black people with white people in our dining room. And uh, the court said, well, that's too bad. It, it may be based on your religious beliefs. It may be based on your moral beliefs, but you don't have an exemption from complying with Title II of the Civil Rights Act because it's a national policy that you may not discriminate based on race in places of public accommodation. So uh, Sotomayor said it's, it's a sad day for the LGBT community because now the court has said that there's a place of public accommodation that's allowed to discriminate against them. They, of course, claim that they're not discriminating against anyone because of their sexual orientation. They're just saying they won't do same-sex marriage websites. And Gorsuch bought that. And he, he refers, in his opinion, many times to the stipulated facts. And he also refers to the Fulton case, which people may remember, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, the Supreme Court's most recent case on LGBTQ issues prior to 303 Creative. In that case, the court said that on the strict scrutiny test, which it applied to the attempt by the city of Philadelphia to require its contractor, the uh, Catholic uh, Social Services, which was running a foster care program under contract to the city, did not want to deal with same-sex couples who wanted to be foster parents. Uh, based on the Catholic Church's views on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And the court said that the issue there on strict scrutiny was whether the state had a compelling justification to deny an exemption to them. Because the state, or the city actually, it was the city of Philadelphia, the city in its contract with Catholic Social Services stated that the uh, head of the agency, the city agency, 
that's uh, in charge of the city child welfare programs has discretion to make exceptions to the non-discrimination provisions. And so the court said, the question there is why they didn't make an exception for Catholic social services. Do they have a compelling interest? And if their compelling interest is to prevent discrimination against same-sex couples, is terminating the contract with Catholic social services the least intrusive way of achieving that? And the answer is no, because there were two dozen other foster care agencies in the, within the city of Philadelphia, most of which would be happy to deal with same-sex couples. So you didn't have to refuse an exception to Catholic social services in order to make it possible for same-sex couples to, uh, to be foster parents. And so he takes that, Gorsuch, and he says, well, look at this case. They make an exception for Lori Smith. Is there anyone else who designs uh, wedding websites? Yes. Is there anyone else who designs same-sex wedding websites? Yes. Same-sex couples in Colorado who want to get to a wedding website can easily find someone else either based in Colorado or anywhere because this is really an internet sort of business. You go online to do this kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be in Colorado. So he said, where is the compelling interest? So where that leaves us is the big question now. Where does this leave us? And the biggest question for many people is how big of an exception does, it, does this make to the non-discrimination requirement? Many of us would say, strictly speaking, as legal theorists and analysts, that this was an as-applied case based on stipulated facts. And so in any other kind of situation, we would have to look at the stipulated facts in this case and see, is that closely analogous to the other case? For example, Masterpiece Cake Shop, wedding cake, the baker, said that he needed a religious exemption from complying with the anti-discrimination law because it violated his religious beliefs to prepare a custom designed wedding cake for a same-sex marriage ceremony of some sort because of his religious beliefs. He made both a religious free exercise argument and a First Amendment freedom of speech argument in that case. But the Supreme Court didn't decide either of those questions because, as people will remember, it found that the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado had signaled hostility to uh, the Baker, Jack Phillips, religious beliefs. And therefore, it was not a neutral forum that he was entitled to. And therefore, its decision had to be vacated. And so it skirted the issue of whether there was a free speech claim. There was a concurring opinion that said that we could decide for him based on freedom of speech. It would be hard to decide for him based on free exercise of religion because of Employment Division versus Smith, the Supreme Court case from 1990, which says that people with religious objections to complying with valid neutral state laws don't have a right to subject them to strict scrutiny. In fact, not even heightened scrutiny. As long as the state has a rational basis for its law, its incidental impact on someone's free exercise of religion does not create the need for an exception. And there's a struggle going on within the Supreme Court over whether to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. In this case, 303 Creative, three questions were put to the court. There was a free exercise of religion question, a freedom of speech question, and a should the court 
reconsider employment division versus Smith, because that's one of the goals of Alliance Defending Freedom in its free exercise and free speech litigation to get employment division versus Smith overturned so that strict scrutiny will always apply uh, in speech and religion. Well, in religion, religion cases, uh, employment division versus Smith only dealt with a religious freedom claim. So uh, it doesn't apply to free speech cases. The court only granted cert on the free speech issue. They didn't grant cert on the other issues because there is no majority to take up and reconsider employment division versus Smith at the present time on the court. But what about a wedding cake? Would the court treat a wedding cake the same way it dealt with a wedding website? And uh, certainly uh, the baker is intimately involved in the creation of the wedding cake. It's not like a couple comes in and they dictate to the baker everything about the appearance of their wedding cake. They may have some general ideas, but it's the baker who devises it. And these wedding cake bakers specialists call themselves cake artists because of the original creative uh, spirit in which they do this. And they say they're doing it because they're celebrating someone's marriage. And they're creating the cake and presenting the cake is a form of celebration of the marriage. So they're making a very similar argument that Lori Smith was making. How far does that go? And we're gonna find out because the court did two other things on June 30th. The thing that we're all focused on is they decided on the merits, the 303 Creative LLC case, but they also granted a cert petition in a long pending uh, petition had been on on for months and had been uh, discussed at several uh, conferences, but they were waiting to uh, decide 303 before they would have granted. Uh, so uh, on the morning of June 30th, they announced 303 Creative. In the afternoon, they published on the website their final order list of the year, sometimes referred to as the shadow docket. They granted cert in a case called Klein versus Oregon Bureau of Labor, which involved a wedding cake. A bakery in Oregon uh, called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Uh, Melissa is Melissa Klein. She and her husband, Aaron Klein, are the co-owners of this business. And they don't want to do wedding cakes for same-sex couples. A lesbian couple came in. Uh, actually, one member of the couple and her mother came in because the mother had gotten a cake at Sweet Cakes by Melissa for some other relative's wedding. And they were very happy with that cake. But when uh, they were asked, who is the cake for? And it's the daughter and her same-sex partner. They said, oh, we can't make that cake. We don't do same-sex marriages. It's against our religious beliefs. And that case ended up before the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries, which is the administrative agency that enforces the state's anti-discrimination law on places of public accommodations which decided against the clients. And in fact, imposed a substantial monetary fine on their company. The uh, two young women who were getting married found another baker who made them a cake, but they filed a charge with the agency. Uh, the agency ruled in their favor and not only fined the, uh, the bakery, but uh, awarded uh, them some damages for their emotional distress, et cetera, from being discriminated against. The case went up to the Oregon Court of Appeals, which affirmed the commission. And a petition for cert was filed by Alliance Defending Freedom with the Supreme Court. And it was pending 
when the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was decided. The Supreme Court remanded the case back to the Oregon Court of Appeals then because uh, ADF was claiming that the chair of the commission, uh, the commissioner of the Bureau of Labor, had made statements that they deemed to be hostile to religion while this case was pending, which they said was pretty significant because the decision by the administrative law judge went to that commissioner to affirm or reject, and that commissioner affirmed it. And he had stated what everyone assumed to be the fact, and which was even reiterated uh, by Justice Kennedy in Master Keith's case shop. He said, the general rule is that there is no religious exemption from complying with anti-discrimination laws. And he cited the restaurant cases from the Title II cases from the 1960s. So uh, the commissioner thought he was just stating what the law is when he made this statement. Now, he made this statement before he approved the AOJ's decision while the case was pending in response to the news reports about the case. And so ADF was arguing, this is just like Masterpiece Cake Shop. There was hostility to religion. You have to set this one aside as well. The Oregon Court of Appeals reviewed the entire record. They said, we don't see any reason to reverse our earlier decision. So then a new cert petition was filed last year. And on uh, June 30th, the Supreme Court granted it, vacated the Oregon Court of Appeals decision, sent the case back to the Oregon Court of Appeals for quote unquote, further consideration in light of 303 Creative. Now, the, uh, the Kleins made a freedom of speech argument and a free exercise of religion argument. So 303 Creative was decided on a freedom of speech basis. What will the Oregon Court of Appeals do now in light of 303 Creative? The issue will be, are the Kleins cake artists who are entitled to be treated as artists for this purpose, who are expressing themselves through their cake, as opposed to a website designer who is expressing herself, her views, through the website she designs. Some people will see a close analogy. Some people will see distinctions. Could be argued either way. So we'll see what happens with cakes. But uh, Justice Sotomayor, in her dissenting opinion in 303 Creative, made it clear that there's a slippery slope here, that the court ruling based on the stipulated facts did not create some sort of bright line test or establish some sort of guideline for courts to determine what kind of goods or services would be considered to have enough of an expressive content on behalf of their seller or their creator to bring in 303 Creative as a binding precedent or to what extent would it be distinguishable? So this is a test case, you know, when you get to it, how, how far, because the presidential value of any Supreme Court opinion depends on how lower courts treat it and how the Supreme Court treats it when later cases come out purporting to apply it or refuse to apply it. Uh, so we don't really know the scope of a precedent at any great detail until things play out in subsequent litigation. And uh, many observers so far in, in the short period of time since the case was decided have said that this case is going to stimulate an awful lot of new litigation because the argument is going to be raised by people with religious objections to same-sex marriage, that just about anything they're asked to do in connection with a same-sex marriage has an expressive component to it. Uh, in uh, the article I've drafted for the July issue of Law Notes, which people will be seeing in a few weeks, I raised the hypothetical of a business 
that specializes in renting formal wear to people for special occasions, because most people don't buy their own tuxedo or their own formal gown. They rent it from a, a business that specializes in those sorts of things. Can they refuse to rent to, uh, for a same-sex marriage ceremony to the uh, uh, couple and to the principals in the ceremony who normally in a very formal marriage, everyone is similarly outfitted. Uh, usually everyone is, has to rent from the same uh, the same company that rents the formal wear. Can they refuse to do it on the grounds that that would be seen as they're endorsing the marriage? What if they didn't design the formal wear? They buy it from a company that manufactures it and they offer a certain different kinds. How much do they have to be involved in its creation? How much of 303 Creative is about the fact that Laurie Smith creates the website in collaboration with the couple? and is not just giving them a template to fill in. Because it was clear from the oral argument that if that's all they were doing, the chances were that the court might come out a different way if it's just to fill in the blanks. That they wouldn't buy the idea that just selling the service is itself endorsement. That the service itself has to involve an expressive or creative component from the person rendering the service. Uh, when you're renting formal wear, you're probably not doing anything creative. Although you might say if you have a tailor who's altering <laughs> The formal wear, then, well, you can see where the arguments are going to go. Uh, and, and there's also the fact that we're not just talking about sex discrimination when we're talking about public accommodations. We're also talking about discrimination on the basis of race or national origin and uh, discrimination based on disability, things of all sorts of things. And uh, to what extent could this carry over to other forms of discrimination? Uh, a hypothetical that was spun by Justice Alito during the oral argument, which many people laughed at, presents this issue. He says there's a, a department store Santa and he's white. And uh, the photographer who employs him wants to create pictures based on a particular motion picture with the department store Santa and the kids posing. And in the motion picture, everyone is white. So he doesn't want to make his photographic services available to black children because he only has a white Santa. And he says, this is because of my expressive creative activity of recreating the scene from this movie for people who are coming in. This is my, my gimmick, my selling point that will put your children with the Santa and create this famous scene from this movie. And we'll say, go, go to the other department store in town where they have a black Santa if you want to have your kids. And he, he puts this hypo and he says, well, how would this come out? Depending upon whether we go in favor of 303 Creative or we go in favor of the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And there was a lot of beating around the bush and back and forth between the attorneys because the hypothetical ended up getting posed on both sides. And I don't think there was any clear answer. But who knows? Who knows, given the way the court dealt with this, at the high level of uh, theoretic generality, we have Gorsuch saying, when a constitutional claim comes in conflict with a statutory claim, the constitutional claim wins. And here the statutory claim is based on the non-discrimination law, the constitutional claim is based on the First Amendment. First Amendment takes priority. And he doesn't go into much explanation of why, but one can easily think that the, uh, the uh, a supremacy clause would probably come into the discussion at that point. So there's where we are, but there's a third 
thing that the court did on June 30th that deserves being mentioned and will be prominently featured in the July issue of Law Notes. They denied cert in a case up from the Fourth Circuit where a divided panel of the Fourth Circuit voted two to one that people with gender dysphoria are protected against discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And they were the first circuit court to so hold. It has long been presumed that there is no protection for people with gender dysphoria under the Americans with Disabilities Act because of an exclusionary provision that was added to the statute while it was being considered in Congress. I believe it's an amendment that is uh, associated with Jesse Helms, but it may have been one of the other conservative uh, senators at the time. They added a provision uh, to the Americans with Disabilities Act specifically intended to exclude protection for gay people, for transgender people, and for various other people of whom they disapproved who might conceptually be considered to have a disability under the definition of a disability in the statute. If you have a disability that falls within the definition and you are otherwise qualified to participate in the activity, to be an employee, to get a service or a good, or to use a transportation facility, the ADA sweeps broadly on a wide range of, of topics. If you are a person with a disability, and you're otherwise qualified, they have to let you do it unless they have a strong affirmative defense, like a health and safety defense or something like that. But the term disability under this exclusionary provision shall not include transvestism, transsexualism, pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, gender identity disorders not resulting from physical impairments or other sexual behavior disorders. And then they have a separate thing about drug addiction. This, this, this is only part of the exclusionary provision, but it's paragraph one of the exclusionary provision is what I just read. So district courts interpreting that, looking at that have generally said, well, that means if you are claiming that you're protected by the ADA because you have gender dysphoria or because of your transgender status, we have to say, no, Congress didn't intend to cover you. But recently, some courts, some district courts have been going in the opposite direction. And they've been using the logic that was actually espoused by Justice Gorsuch in the Bostock case and by Justice Scalia in the case of a man who was subjected to sexual harassment on Kali versus uh, Sundown or Offshore. This is a case from, I think, 1999, 2000, around that. Justice Scalia wrote for a unanimous court that the uh, doctrine of hostile environment sexual harassment, which had been developed under Title VII, applied to harassment of men by other men, or didn't automatically not apply to harassment of men by other men. Onkali was employed on a, an oil platform in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and he was harassed by his male co-workers because he was an effeminate man. He wasn't gay but they picked on him. He was their sexual release. They picked on him uh, and he complained. And finally he quit because he said, I can't take this harassment anymore. It's driving me crazy. And he filed a discrimination claim with the EEOC. The fifth circuit rejected it. They said sex discrimination means discriminating against someone because they're a man or a woman. And the discriminating is usually by a woman or a man or a company that has a policy that they don't employ women in these jobs or something like that. 
But uh, for someone being harassed by members of the same sex, we don't think that that comes within what Congress intended by adding sex to Title VII, because sex was added to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination in a floor amendment in the House of Representatives. It wasn't really well developed in the uh, in the legislative history in terms of committee reports and things of that sort. So the Fifth Circuit said no same-sex harassment cases in the Fifth Circuit. Went up to the Supreme Court and the court said, why not? If he was singled out because of his sex, maybe because he's a man who doesn't uh, act or, or project in accord with gender stereotypes. And the court had already, they'd had their gender stereotype case by then. So uh, uh, Justice Scalia famously said in that case that we are governed by the text of the statute that Congress enacted, not by the intentions of the legislators. We look not to legislative intent, we look to meaning. We look to the meaning of the text and how it can be interpreted. And Gorsuch pounced right on this in the Bostock case. It's yes, we look for the meaning of the text in Title VII. And uh, don't bother me with stories about how Congress couldn't have intended in 1964 to protect gay and trans people from discrimination. We certainly would have heard a lot about that in the legislative history, wouldn't we? He said, well, that doesn't matter. If conceptually discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, at least in part is discriminating because of their sex, then it violates Title VII, unless there's an affirmative defense of some sort that applies in the case, because sex discrimination is subject to affirmative defenses, unlike race discrimination. So uh, same thing here. Some district courts have looked at this and said, well, let's look exactly at the text. It doesn't mention transgender status. And it certainly doesn't mention gender dysphoria. It talks about transsexualism, gender identity disorders not resulting from physical impairments or other sexual behavior disorders. But it doesn't mention gender dysphoria. The comeback, of course, is that as of the time the ADA was enacted, 1991, as of that time, gender dysphoria was not a phrase that was used to refer to uh, transgender people. Gender dysphoria found its way into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association in subsequent editions, but the edition in effect at that time didn't use it. The transsexual and transsexualism were the vocabulary they used. And uh, the Fourth Circuit, reversing a district court decision, dismissing an ADA claim by a uh, a, uh, actually it was a, jail, a person in jail in, in Virginia, I believe, because this case came up through the Fourth Circuit. Keisha Williams was a transgender incarcerated person in the jail and felt that she was being discriminated against. And she brought a claim under multiple different uh, theories, equal protection and other things, but she also had an ADA claim in there. And the district judge dismissed the ADA claim based on the exclusionary provision. And uh, the Fourth Circuit panel reversed two to one on that point and said, no, she can bring a claim under the ADA because gender dysphoria is a diagnosis that varies from the diagnoses for the other things listed there. It's different in some respects from what was in the DSM at the time the ADA was adopted. So, and, and uh, there was a, uh, a petition by the sheriff, 
this was a, a county jail, so it was the sheriff who was the name defendant. And the sheriff petitioned the Fourth Circuit for on-bank reconsideration, and they denied the petition for on-bank reconsideration over a rather angry dissent signed by several members of the Fourth Circuit. So then the sheriff petitions the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied cert on June 30th. There was a dissent by Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas. Justice Alito says, look, this case presents a question of great national importance that calls out for prompt review. Unlike Title VII, which deals only with employment discrimination, the Bostock case theoretically deals only with employment discrimination. However, as we've seen, the reasoning of Bostock now has been applied by lower courts in Fair Housing Act cases, in Title IX education cases, in credit cases. They have basically run with it. The, The Biden administration has run with it. Most federal courts to have considered the matter have taken the reasoning of Bostock and applied it to every federal sex discrimination law. How about the ADA? Well, the ADA doesn't involve discrimination because of sex. So Bostock isn't directly relevant. It's discrimination because of disability. And in this case, Alito says, this decision will raise a host of important and sensitive questions regarding such matters as participation in women's and girls' sports, access to single-sex restrooms and housing, the use of traditional pronouns, the administration of sex reassignment therapy, both the performance of surgery and the administration of hormones by physicians and at hospitals that object to such treatment on religious or moral grounds. You know, he he says the ADA is wide-ranging. It doesn't just focus on employment. And he says, if the Fourth Circus decision is correct, There should be no delay in providing the protection of the ADA to all Americans who suffer from, quote, feelings of stress and discomfort, unquote, resulting from their assigned sex, quote, unquote. He's picking that up out of uh, the DSM diagnosis uh, description of gender dysphoria. But he says, if the Fourth Circuit's decision is wrong, and there's certainly a reasonable argument to that effect, then the 32 million residents of the Fourth Circuit should not have to bear the consequences while all other courts wrestle with the same legal issue. So he says the court should have granted cert to resolve this issue. He says the Fourth Circuit's decision makes an important provision of a federal law inoperative. And given the broad reach of the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act, which also deals with disability discrimination, will have far-reaching and important effects across much of civil society in that circuit. So he says they should have granted cert. Why didn't they grant cert? There's no circuit split. The fourth circuit is the only circuit to address the issue. Uh, They usually wait for a circuit split before dealing with a statutory interpretation issue uh, involving a federal statute, especially if if, if it's an issue where the court says the federal statute doesn't apply or is unconstitutional or something like that. But here it's just an interpretive issue. And they usually, they wait to see how it develops in lower courts. And there are a handful of district courts around the country. I recall there was one in Connecticut. Uh, There's one out in the Midwest, I I seem to recall. A handful of them who have taken this view. Some still persist in saying we're going with the intent of Congress. And it's pretty clear from the language that they didn't intend to protect transgender people, even if they didn't use that term, because that term wasn't in vogue at the time. The term at the time was transsexualism. So we'll see how this one plays out. 
now that the uh, Supreme Court has denied cert, presumably this case goes back and uh, the district court is going to have to uh, decide whether there was discrimination in this case against uh, Ms. Williams. Wow, so much to unpack there. Thank you for taking us through everything that happened on June 30th. I know some of those other issues didn't quite get as much of the limelight as 303 Creative. Well, we did. There was another decision on the 30th that's going to affect an awful lot of LGBTQ people. That is, they struck down the Biden administration's uh, debt relief thing for, uh, for education loans. But what we've seen in the days after that decision is they've come up, the Biden administration is coming up with alternative statutory grounds, which are going to require the adoption of formal regulations under a different statute than the one the president relied on for his executive order. Uh, So there's a possibility that debt relief will be coming back in some different form. But in the meanwhile, I mean, that involves millions of people and Anything that involves millions of people in the United States is going to involve at least thousands of LGBTQ people. And we are everywhere. That's true. And I believe the Williams Institute has done a fair bit of research and reporting about how LGBTQ plus people are disproportionately saddled with student loan debt. So um, a few things that I wanted to kind of circle back on. Have you had an opportunity to look at the 303 Creative LLC website lately? I actually haven't. Um, I I don't know if she is actually going ahead and doing this or not. Now that the Supreme Court has ruled in her case, uh, you have to at least wait for the court to send its mandate back down to the Court of Appeals, reversing the Court of Appeals decision. And then you have to wait for the Court of Appeals to dissolve their their, uh, the the injunction that was granted by the district court. Oh, no, the, the injunction was denied by the district court. Now they have to issue an injunction. So an injunction hasn't been issued yet against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So the piece that I want to kind of take you through is the disclaimer that's currently up on the website. It reads, quote, as a Christian who believes that God gave me the creative gifts that are expressed through this business, I have always strived to honor him and how I operate it. My primary objective is to design and create expressive content, script, graphics, websites, and other creative content to convey the most compelling and effective message I can to promote my clients' purposes, goals, services, products, events, causes, or values. Because of my faith, however, I am selective about the messages that I will create or promote. While I will serve anyone, I am always careful to avoid communicating ideas or messages or promoting events, products, services, or organizations that are inconsistent with my religious beliefs, end quote. Yeah, and I wonder which lawyer at ADF drafted that for her. <laughs> well, yeah, that, just natural, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's sort of interesting. Uh, and I wonder how long that's been up on the website because after all, she lost in the 10th Circuit. But then, you know, this whole case was litigated based on the stipulated facts. And the stipulated facts all had to do with how she was planning to do wedding websites. They did talk about the way she does websites, how she collaborates with clients and stuff. And it's an interactive process in many ways. But how much of that, how much of that is just generalized? I mean, she carefully didn't mention wedding cakes at all, of course, in that statement, because she officially isn't in that business yet. But presumably with the Supreme Court's opinion, you know, it's uh, the mandate's going to go down. The mandate is usually issued within a week or so after the opinion. 
the mandate goes down uh, to the East Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals reverses its decision and complies with the mandate and remands the case down to the district court, which is going to have to reverse its decision on the part, the port part that it found that was standing. Obviously, they, the district court dismissed the, uh, the accommodations uh, claim and only dealt with the communications claim. So all that will be sorted out. But presumably, she has the blessing of the Supreme Court to go ahead now and start doing white websites. What she'll say, probably a version of what you read, but making it more explicit. It could be, uh, is, is there anything on the website listing the kinds of websites she designs? So the, the page about websites itself doesn't say I do birthday parties or weddings or funeral. Like it doesn't really get into the occasion behind website. And I would imagine that before this whole case arose, it could be that her main work was designing websites for businesses or for individuals. I, I know, for example, almost every actor or musician of any uh, significant professional standing has a website. You know, you, you, you read in the newspaper uh, about some new concert artist or theater you know, author or whatever, and if you Google them, you usually end up finding a website. Who designs these websites? Well, some people design their own websites. These days, there's software that uh, they say almost any idiot can design a website. But if you want something that's really professional looking, you might hire a website designer. And that's probably most of the work she had. Maybe she had gotten inquiries about wedding websites, not from same-sex couples, but from other people. And uh, maybe uh, she was concerned about because the issue of same-sex marriage was in the air because of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which took up a lot of media uh, attention back in that time when this all arose. You know, ever since the Obergefell case, there's been a lot of media attention on religious refusals to deal with same-sex couples in the context of marriage. From the marriage, the way the uh, county clerk in Kentucky who refused to issue marriage licenses and ended up in jail for a while for contempt of court. You know. There, there was quite a little, a lot of, well, in these days, you don't say ink spilled because we're not talking mainly about newspapers. We're talking about, there were a lot of electrons buzzing around on this issue in the internet. And so it was in the air, maybe if, if uh, she was uh, literally thinking about doing marriage websites and was concerned whether it would be illegal for her to refuse to do same-sex marriage websites because she felt based on her religious beliefs that she couldn't do those. Maybe this originated with her and she found ADF or maybe ADF was looking for a website designer to be a test case. That the opinions are not clear about how this case actually came about. Well, I will leave it to our listeners to visit the website or not and make their own judgment about the quality of the graphics and creativity involved there. I know there was some discussion kind of with this case and with Fulton, and you touched on this a little bit, but I just want to do a bit of a deeper dive on the availability of alternative service providers. I know Eric and I had spoken about this in particular with Fulton, that 
yes, you can get accredited to be a foster parent through other agencies, but the child you want to foster may not be at that particular agency that's accepting to you. So arguably there isn't necessarily an available alternative anyways, but setting that aside, Justice Sotomayor does a really lovely discussion on the injury that occurs to folks who have to uh, reach out to an alternative service provider. And I was wondering if you wanted to take us through that in a little bit more detail. Yes, he talks about the dignitary harm of being told that you will not be served because of who you are. And she says the court's decision is totally insensitive to that. And also part of the analysis here by the uh, Tenth Circuit, the reason they had had ruled against Lori Smith on the uh, accommodation claim was that she made a big deal and there was a stipulation in the facts that her websites were absolutely unique that the, uh, the artistic skill with which she devised these websites for people was completely unique. And therefore, uh, the 10th Circuit reasoned you couldn't just get it from someone else. Anyone else you went to would be distinguishable in some way from what Lori Smith would do. The only way to get her unique services was to contract with her. And therefore, we can't give her a religious exception. Gorsuch basically said hogwash. He, he said, everyone is unique. Every person is unique. Every individual is unique. That's not a basis for saying you can't go and get it from someone else. And so it was totally insensitive to how this would affect the people who were excluded. A lot of discussion around treating this as a narrow loss for the community. Do you have concerns either in New York City or upstate that this decision might embolden folks? to try to discriminate against LGBTQ plus people when they are just operating a run-of-the-mill business, no expressive whatsoever? Well, it might, because uh, it's not like there's a generally high level of sophistication out in the general public about how the law works, how legal reasoning works. And I think, especially from the way it's reported in the general media, the decisions of the Supreme Court sound like awfully political. There isn't intricate legal reasoning that is exposed necessarily. I mean, you can read in the New York Times or whatever, but then you read the wire service things that are picked up by local newspapers. And you, you think about what local radio or television stations or various internets, and, and you look at the variety of, of internet news sources that have a strong ideological overlays to them. I mean, you, you read about a story on, on CNN and then you read about a story on Fox News or you read on, on for one of the press services from Associated Press or Reuters and you get different slants and different levels of sophistication. And I, I don't know that the general media reporting has emphasized how fact-based the 303 creative decision was, that it was really the stipulation of facts. And I've already seen some comments from people who've, who've actually access the opinion because anyone can access the opinion just go to the supreme court's website click on the tab for opinions of the court and go to june 30th and there's the opinions issued on june 30th so and anyone can read them they're written in english and gorsuch's opinions are actually rather easy to read that not uh, the sort of complicated mystical things that justice kennedy used to spin out in gay rights cases where people would read it and shake their head and say what is he saying uh gorsuch is pretty straightforward 
but he pro he he refers again and again to the stipulated facts. Everything flows from the stipulated facts because the Supreme Court is a court that's deciding a case, and cases are deciding according to their facts. And since this isn't a facial challenge to the statute, it's a challenge to the statute as applied to a specific set of facts. And the court did not declare the statute unconstitutional. They said it would violate the First Amendment rights of Lori Smith to compel her to make a wedding website for a same-sex couple. And so to the extent that the Colorado statute could be interpreted to require her to do so, it's unconstitutional, but only to that extent. And it's based on the facts that were stipulated between her and the agency that enforces the statute as to what the facts were of the case. And they were clearly molded very carefully by Alliance Defending Freedom to give them a basis to win this case, as were the questions that they put in their cert petition. Yeah, and I think this is a point that it's worth mentioning again, how unique this case is in that there wasn't representation for the LGBTQ plus community. There was no one from Lambda, no one from- Well, the there were plenty of amicus briefs filed by all of them, so. Of course, but there was no party there to be part of that conversation in terms of stipulation of facts to say, no, no, wait a minute, let's step back. Maybe the facts could have come out very differently had there been an aggrieved LGBTQ plus couple represented by one of the national advocacy powerhouses. If this was a real case or controversy, exactly. as, opposed, as opposed to, as some people have called it, a made up case that shouldn't have had standing at all. I mean, the district judge tossed out the the challenge to the non-discrimination provision on standing grounds, on, on the ground that it was totally hypothetical. The communications clause case was not totally hypothetical because she could have put a statement on her website. And if someone called up the commission and said, have you seen this statement on her website? They could say, well, that violates the provision on communicating that you will uh, discriminate. So that's that's a closer case as, as to whether it's... Uh, there's a standing problem or not. But, you know, the, this is really, to a large extent, an advisory opinion, which the Supreme Court says we don't do. And I'm surprised that the dissenters didn't make more out of that. I mean, they criticized it, but they basically criticized, they spent most of their time working on the merits of the First Amendment claim and said, this is totally unprecedented. Troubling on a number of issues. Yeah. I mean, Justice Sotomayor says that gay people are being told that when it comes to the public marketplace, you are second-class citizens. You don't get to uh, enjoy all of the goods and services that every public accommodation uh, puts out. A public accommodation that can make an expressive argument might have a First Amendment free speech right to deny you their goods or services. And in this case, it's a combination of the two. I mean, website design. Is a website a good? Well, you know, ever since the internet, the advent of the internet, uh, courts have been uh, struggling with the issue of how to characterize stuff online with respect to goods, because the law of contracts is different when you're talking about goods as opposed to other things because of the Uniform Commercial Code. So various aspects of the law of contracts depend upon whether the subject matter of a transaction is a good or a service. Services are governed in most ways by the common law or by some other statutes. Goods are governed by the Uniform Commercial Code, which is in effect in 49 states 
for uh, transactions in goods, the exception being Louisiana, where they followed the old code Napoleon, as updated in Louisiana. But you know, there, there, there has been a sort of consensus emerging that a lot of what goes on on the internet should be considered goods. Certainly when you sell software, that's considered a good, even though you no longer buy software on a floppy disk, which is the way it was back in the 90s when they first started coping with this. Today, you buy software by not downloading it from a website, right? And it gets installed on your computer. There's a flow of electrons. Is that goods? Are you buying the specific electrons? Are you buying the program? Is a computer program a good? Is software a good? Hardware is a good, of course, but what about software? And most courts say, if you hire someone to design software for you, that is primarily a service contract. But if you're buying standardized software that has been devised by a company to sell for a particular kind of use, you're buying a good. And so different rules would apply, rules about warranties, things of that sort uh, that are specified in the UCC, but are not necessarily implied as a matter of common law, depending on which state you're in, as the common law of contracts has evolved differently in different states. So, uh, you know, the, the new world that we live in, the world of electronic media and everything else has presented significant conceptual challenges to the courts and to legislatures who are trying to keep up to date, but who tend to be sluggish about adjusting to new technology. So, uh, you know, websites, wedding cakes. A wedding cake is a physical thing. A website is arrangement of uh, signals on a website somewhere, which is on a, on a server, which is hosted and it sits there, but it's not a thing as such, right? It's, it's hard to conceptualize all this stuff. And whether that would make a difference in analyzing the issues raised by 303 Creative. I mean, I think it's a stretch to call a website designer an artist in general. I mean, they are creating something. Is a website art? Well, some perhaps, but it strikes me as a rather utilitarian thing as opposed to a work of art is a wedding cake that has been specially designed for a particular wedding, a work of art. Is the claim of the baker to being a cake artist something that should have a legal significance? And what other goods or services might come within that? How about a wedding photographer? One of the first cases predating Obergefell was a wedding photographer case from New Mexico. And the New Mexico Supreme Court decided that case and decided that the refusal by the wedding photographer to uh, photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony. This was uh, in a state, New Mexico, which at the time didn't have marriage equality. But the photographer was contracted by a lesbian couple who wanted to have photographic documentation of their commitment ceremony with the usual album that flows from that and everything else. And the photographer said, no, because I have religious objections. And it ended up before the New Mexico Supreme Court, which said that under our anti-discrimination law, you don't have a right based on your personal religious views. They acknowledge that photography is an art 
that the photographer is posing the picture and then selecting the pictures for the album and arranging it and all this sort of stuff. There is creativity there, but they didn't think of her as an artist who has a First Amendment right to refuse to do this. And the Supreme Court of the United States denied cert in that case, which is sort of the grandparent of all marriage cases of the type of litigation that we're talking about, where purveyors of goods or services or facilities or whatever. I mean, we had a case in upstate New York involving a farm that was hosting weddings and didn't want to host same-sex weddings. And the State Division of Human Rights said they were violating the human rights law. And that held up in the state courts. How that would be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, I haven't haven't a clue. After three or three created. Well, certainly a lot of unknown after today, but of course there are a few knowns, right? We know that our organization isn't going anywhere and we are going to continue to advocate for the LGBTQ plus community and legal community alike. Any parting thoughts for our listeners about this decision? Be attentive to what's happening. Watch what's happening. In addition to the newsletter that we publish for our Bar Association members, which actually is available to anybody on the New York Law School website within about a month after publication. It's it's archived there. And uh, articles from it are now selectively published on Westlaw's secondary publications uh, database. And there's the gay press, which is doing a much better job of covering all this than the mainstream press because we're especially interested. So Gay City News, for which I write, I had 10 articles in Gay City News in June. <laughs> That's how busy June was for uh, significant LGBT uh, legal developments. That's online and that's free to anyone who wants to read it online. There, there are ways to keep abreast of what's happening. So I advise people to be alert to what's happening, pay attention, support the organizations that are litigating on our behalf on these issues. All of the major LGBTQ organizations had amicus briefs in the 303 creative case. One thing you could see, which is very interesting, if you are curious, you go on the Supreme Court's website and you can look at the docket for each case on which a cert petition is filed and listed on the docket is everything that's filed in connection with that case, including all the amicus briefs. And you can actually download and read them because everything has to be submitted to the court now in electronic readable format. There's usually PDF files. Uh, And you could see who the organizations are that are trying to influence the court in cases. And for 303 Creative, there's a long list of amicus briefs on both sides of the issue. Uh, So that's something to pay attention to as well. And to uh, single out the organizations whose views you support. And uh, these are mainly nonprofit organizations who depend upon donations from the public. So support the organizations that are trying to support your rights. I guess that's my parting argument. Be involved. Well, certainly evergreen advice. Thank you so much for joining us on short notice to discuss this latest breaking development. And thank you as always for our listeners. Please continue to find us and share our program wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Podbean, Apple Music, Spotify, and many more. Thank you so much.